So I'm so happy that you ladies are faithful to come on Valentine's Day. And so I thought that a little information might be in order about St. Valentine. Okay? So St. Valentine was a Catholic priest who had also worked at a doctor. He lived in Italy during the 3rd century A.D., and he served as a priest in Rome. Now, historians don't know a lot about his early life. They pick up his story mainly after he began working as a priest. But he became famous for marrying couples who were in love but couldn't get legally married in Rome. And the reason was that Emperor Claudius II had outlawed weddings. And you might ask, well, why in the world would he outlaw weddings? Well, he wanted to recruit a lot of men as soldiers in his army, and he did not want a wife to be distracting. So even for the ones that were already soldiers, he didn't think that he thought a wife would be distracting from his pursuits in that area. So when Emperor Claudius discovered that St. Valentine, and he became a saint later, I'll tell you about that in a minute, when he, was, he went ahead and continued to perform weddings, well, he sent him to jail. Claudius sent Valentine to jail. And Valentine used his time in jail to continue to reach out to people with the love that Jesus Christ had given him for others, which is especially appropriate to our lesson tonight. And while he was in jail, he befriended his jailer, who became very impressed with his wisdom. So he asked Valentine if he would help his daughter, Julia, who was blind, by reading to her and you know helping her to learn. So he became close friends with Julia and worked with her when she came to visit him in jail. Well, eventually, Claudius, Emperor Claudius, also came to like Valentine, so he offered to pardon him and set him free if he would renounce his Christian faith and agree to worship the Roman gods. But Valentine not only refused to leave his faith, he encouraged Claudius to put his trust in Jesus Christ. Now, his faithful choices cost him his life. The emperor was so enraged at his response that he sentenced him to die. Before he was killed, he wrote a last note to encourage Julia to stay close to Jesus and to thank her for being his friend. He signed the note, From Your Valentine. That note inspired people to begin writing their own loving messages to people on Valentine Feast Day, February 14th, which is celebrated on the same day that he was martyred. He was beaten, stoned, and beheaded on February 14, 270 A.D. People who remembered his loving service to all those young couples began celebrating his life, and eventually he was regarded as a saint because supposedly Julia was healed of her blindness. You know, to be a saint in the Catholic Church, you have to have a documented miracle. That, that's the word. So... Anyway, by 496, one of the popes designated February 14th as Valentine's official feast day. So, in our culture, obviously, Valentine's Day is all about, you know, romantic love. And I had a student, I was telling the story to some students today that were at a thing, and she was like, well, there's this Greek myth, and it was talking about Cupid and all that kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, but the real name, Valentine's Day, it's not Cupid's Day. <laughs> was about someone that was devoted to Christ. So I, I think it's appropriate that we have a truer, broader perspective of really what love is about. And Valentine is a great example. And just as he was a picture of Christ's love, how much more do we see the true love when we look at God in Christ in the Word of God? The Bible gives us this clear picture of the love of God, which is a self-giving love, 
a love that has nothing that loves people that have nothing to offer it, which is very rare in our culture. The kind of love we have in our culture is often, I love you because I can get something from you. And God's love is even a love to those that reject his love. It continues. And we saw that last week as we ended with that picture of all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. That's the kind of love that God has. And Paul has told us um, about this type of love in 9 and 10, about the Jews and where they've been, and how the word of God has not fallen. That's his argument. God's promise and his faithfulness, not only to his word, but the kind of love, the quality of love he has, has not fallen. So in chapter 11, he's continuing to explain God's dealing with Israel. And remember, what is the overall purpose of God in everything? We said it over and over again. Ultimately, his ultimate purpose is his glory, his glory. So we have to keep that in mind. Uh, But the underlying theme in this passage and what we're looking at tonight is grace. What God does to the undeserving, both the Jew and the Gentile. So let's go to verse 1 of chapter 11, and Paul is going to continue his argument. Oh, did I say verse 1? Is that right? Yeah. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's first proof that God has not rejected his people is himself. He's a believer, and he, you know, from the the tribe of Benjamin, a prestigious tribe. But next, he continues the argument of the remnant with an illustration. So let's look at verses 2 through 6. He says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul, even though there were um, not a lot of Jewish believers proportionately to the Gentiles, remember that at Pentecost, 3,000 believed. So there, there was a significant number. But Paul goes in in this thought of has God's word fallen, has God not stayed true? He talks about himself, and then he goes back to the Old Testament. Remember how Paul does that over and over again. He teaches something, and he ties it into the Old Testament. Um, in 1 Kings 18 and 19 is the story of Elijah. So let me just give you a little background on Elijah. So the kingdom of Israel... Um, was a theocracy. They looked to God, the time of judges. But then Israel wanted to be like the nations around them. They wanted a king that they could look to. So God raised up Saul. Saul became the king. He ended up being a loser. That's going to be my synopsis of Saul. And then God raised up David to be the king, okay? And, you know, David conquered a lot. He was a man of war, but, you know, he was a great king. And that's when we see him referred to over and over again, that the kingdom was, was, was created primarily and expanded under David. And then Solomon reigned in peace. His son Solomon reigned. 
But when Solomon died, Solomon had taxed the people a lot. He had all these big building programs. And his son Rehoboam took over. And unfortunately, Rehoboam didn't listen to the older people like me that had wisdom. He listened to his friends who said, look, you just need to be tough. Because the older guy said, look, you need to back off and give him a break. The young guy said, you just need to be tougher with him. So he listened to his friends, and that created rebellion. And so ten tribes broke off. And they went to the northern kingdom under Jeroboam. God raised up Jeroboam. And then two tribes went to the southern kingdom, which became known as Judah, under Rehoboam at that time. Jeroboam, that God was going to give him a good shot at it, he ended up messing up, setting up these idols. And so the northern kingdom just had bad king after bad king. But in the southern kingdom, um, we see that after he raised up... uh, a Rehoboam, then it was off and on whether they had good things or bad kings. But about seven years later, after the kingdom split, in Israel, the northern kingdom, Ahab became king and married Jezebel of Sidon. The Sidonians were very pagan. And they heavily, she brought this the Baal worship and it was heavily promoted. During that time, God raised up Elijah as a prophet. And the prophets were always to speak the word of the Lord and call the people back to repentance. Um, Baal worship was very, very popular, and there was a couple of reasons. Um, Baal worship was all about, really, ultimately, it was about material prosperity, having your crops, having fertility, all those things that you needed, kind of like people wanting money in the bank today, but for them, it was, you know, whether they had crops and things like that. So they believed that Baal ruled that, and so their worship was tied to having fertility as far as crops and other things. And so they tied into that sexuality as part of the fertility. So they would go and worship with these prostitutes and have sex acts to encourage Baal to make them prosperous. So not only were they looking for material things, but you can see the draw to that, okay, appealing to the flesh. So it became very much a trap. And so Jezebel was heavily promoting Baal worship. So anytime you see a Baal worship, that's what was going on with it. It was kind of a twofold draw to your flesh, material prosperity as well as sexual immorality. Well, anyway, during this time, he has a showdown on Mount Carmel. And gets 450 prophets of Baal there. Because he's like, okay, you think you think this is what's who's got power? We're going to have a showdown. So he brings in these 450 prophets of Baal. And so there's Elijah. And they both make these sacrifices. And set the fire and the whole thing. And all day long the prophets of Baal are crying out. And calling on Baal to send down the fire. And nothing happens. And then Elijah pours water all over the sacrifice, or the sacrifice in the wood so much that there's a trench around it that's full of water. And then he prays, and God sends fire down. But listen to his prayer. This was his prayer. And I want you to see his motivation. O oh Lord our God, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. Answer me so that these people know you are God and are turning their hearts back again. His prayer wasn't, can you just prove me right so I got a good reputation? He was worried about God's reputation, and he wanted the people to turn back. And then God sent the fire, burned up everything, and the people cried out, the Lord, he is God. So they're believers when they see this. So he had, then he had all the prophets of Baal killed, 450 of them. 
It was a great spiritual victory. But then he gets word, Jezebel sends him a word that she's going to kill him. She's going to have him killed. Okay? Now, you would think he would be fearless. He was fearless facing down the prophets of Baal. However, he was a human. And after great spiritual victory, often you're very susceptible to emotional difficulties. And so he gets afraid, and he runs for his life. He goes to the desert, and you know what he does? He prays to die. He says, Lord, I've had enough. You ever been there? Lord, I've had enough. And so God sends an angel because the Lord knows what we need, and we should remember this ourselves sometimes. He sends an angel to give him food and water. He comes again. Elijah rests. He comes again, and the Lord says, you need to get up and leave. You need to eat again. You're going to have a long journey. So he goes 40 days to this cave on Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. You know what happened on Mount Sinai? Giving of the law, all of that. Moses met with God. And so that takes us to 1 Kings 19, and let's see what the Lord does. Because it's, it, I want us to get the context when, when Paul um, goes back and uses. And I gave you some of these on your homework, but I want to just read this today. And remember, Paul is using Elijah in the context of God staying true to his word and the whole idea of the remnant. So he gets to Horeb, he spends a night in a cave, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. What would you describe that as? Two words that are hyphenated. Self-pity. That's right. He's, he's, ha he's having a pity party. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire was a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altar, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. So he's in the presence of the Lord, but that tape is still running in his mind. You ever have trouble getting that tape out of your mind when you're feeling sorry for yourself? I mean, here's Elijah, the great prophet, y'all, and he's got the tape going on. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram, and anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the Abel Mahola, from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death those who escaped the sword of Hazael. Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Now here's the quote. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. So he tells Elijah that his perception is inaccurate. The tape is wrong. It's a lie. That there are 7,000, even though he may not be aware of them, that God has reserved. And so that is the point that Paul is making. 
that just like in the Old Testament, God reserved a remnant in the worst of times, it was true in the day and time when a lot of Israel were rejecting Christ. So how does that apply to us? Our day is full of wickedness, idolatry, sexual immorality, and we can often feel like Elijah. We can feel that way in our family, at our job, in the culture, even sometimes in the church. I'm the only one. I'm done. <laughs> you ever had that thought? <laughs> we must not be discouraged when spiritual, re spiritual results seem small or when we feel alone. We must remember that God is working his purposes. There are many others who have not bowed the knee. So the truth is this. God always has a remnant who are his and who are accomplishing his purposes. God always has a remnant who are his and who are accomplishing his purposes. Sure, God always has a remnant who are his and who are accomplishing his purposes. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see that concept. So are you feeling discouraged spiritually or alone in trying to live for God or maybe even in your ministry? Does the lack of passion for God or the things of God in this world around you make you feel like giving up or maybe just being complacent yourself? If so, the answer is a fresh vision of God. Fix your eyes on him and not those around you. Part of the answer may be rest and some food. You know, we don't take care of ourselves physically. It's going to affect us spiritually. So that's a lesson in this as well. But God took care of both, didn't he? Fix your eyes on him because the other things around you are peripheral and he is central. Hebrews 12.2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race before us. That's what Elijah did, and he obeyed. And notice what Paul says in 5 and 6. He says, I read this, but I want to read it again. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So what word does Paul use four times? Grace. You see, Paul was captivated by grace. He saw grace everywhere, and he wanted others to see it as well. And so here's your next truth. A love of grace is evidence of both salvation and Christian maturity. A love of grace is evidence of both salvation and Christian maturity. Paul never got over God's grace. He never took it for granted. You can see that in how he writes. A love of grace is evidence of both salvation and Christian maturity. So how often do you think about God's grace? After the first three chapters of Romans, you should have a really clear picture of how undeserving you are, I'm just saying, and how you don't really deserve to receive any good thing from God. Our next breath is only by God's grace, much less everything else that we have. Now, Paul continues in 7 through 10. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened as it is written. Here's this quote from the Old Testament again. God gave them a spirit of stupor 
eyes so they could not see, ears so they could not hear, and to, the, to this very day. And verse 9, and David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. So verse 7 shows us that the chosen or the elect received right standing with God, which we call salvation, through faith. The elect never refers to sinners. Nowhere in scripture are there elect sinners. That's significant when we try to wrestle with election. Only the elect saved. The others, it says here, were hardened. So what does that hardening look like? And we're going to take a look at it coming from these Old Testament things, in these verses. Verse 8, the hardening is that their thinking and their understanding spiritually was limited. They would not see, so they could not see or hear. We see this principle throughout Scripture. As a man says no to God, God gives him what he wants. Remember in Romans 1? That's part. God, part of God's judgment is giving you what you choose. And we saw that at the beginning of Romans 1. Um, God gives you what you want, and he takes away your ability to say yes. Every time we say no to God, to something he says to us or reveals to us, we begin to lose spiritual sensitivity. We begin to lose spiritual desire, and then we begin to lose the ability to obey because we have no desire to obey. Every time we say yes to God and obey, our ability to see and hear from him, our desire to obey increases, and our desire works with our will to help us to obey more. So it all really begins with your response whenever it's a big thing or a small thing, saying yes or no to God. So when you have a lack of desire for God, for his will, serving him, obeying him, the answer is always the same. Ask yourself, at what point have I disobeyed something God showed me or called me to do? And then go back to that place of whatever you disobeyed, repent, obey, and move forward with God. So here's your next truth. Repentance is the first remedy for lack of desire for God and lack of spiritual power. Repentance is the first remedy for a lack of desire for God and a lack of spiritual power. Go back and see where you said no to God and repent. Repentance is the first remedy for a lack of desire for God and a lack of spiritual power. Now, as I'm speaking, has God brought something to your mind that maybe God's been dealing with you on and you just haven't fully obeyed? As an act of faith, will you repent and obey because you want to experience more of him? Which do you want the most is the question. So the first hardening is that they lose spiritual understanding. The second hardening is a quote from Psalm 69 in verse 9. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. So we're going to talk with that first part. Good gifts from God, which he calls the table, that represents the blessing. The good gifts from God misused, are misused, 
when they become a stumbling block and a snare because we love them more than we love the giver. When we begin to worship the gifts, put our trust in the gifts, our hope in the gifts, our our focus on the gifts more than the giver, they become a stumbling block and snare. If the blessings, here's your truth, if the blessings of God are misused, they become a snare to us and harden our hearts. If the blessings of God are misused, they become a snare to us and harden our hearts. These can be material blessings or they can be spiritual blessings. At the beginning of chapter 9, 3 through 5, we talked about Israel, and he said theirs is the adoption of sons, the divine glory, the covenants, the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Remember all those blessings Israel had? But they began trusting in that and not God himself, and so it became a stumbling block and a snare to them. If the blessings of God are misused, they become a snare to us and harden our hearts. Now, in the second part, we see the other part of the hardening, a third type of hardening. Verse 10, may their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs bent forever. So we see that we, you know, we already mentioned the blindness, but this whole thing about their backs being bent, it reminds us of work under a heavy load. That's the opposite of all those pleasures being a snare the table the indulgence the blessings you got one extreme there that causes them to be hardened when they start trusting in that and the other extreme is the burden and the weight now think about what we've been seeing about Israel where did the burden and the weight come from the law they were trying to earn their salvation by fulfilling the law so you have two opposite types of hardening causes of hardening, indulging in pleasures and constructing a morality that's works-based. Both of those, all three of those, are part of the hardening, and they all start when we say yes to something other than God. We put God to the side so he gives us what we want. That's what his judgment is in his hardening. And so as we move to the next section, we're going to see God's eternal plan for Israel and the Gentiles. And we're going to see his marvelous sovereignty, how he uses all things, even our sin, ladies, for his plan and his glory, which is just stunning, just stunning. So let's look at 11 and 12. Again, I asked, talking about the Jews, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression in rejecting Christ, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness be? So that hints to the fact that there's going to be a fullness with Israel. Okay, we're going to see that in a little bit. Israel's sin opened the way for salvation to come to the Gentiles, but God's not finished. But as Gentiles, we need to have this proper perspective, both about ourselves, which he's going to address, and about Israel. Unfortunately, in the history of the church, there's been a lot of times where there's been anti-Semitism and a hatred for the Jews with a not taking the full account of Scripture, but people blaming the Jews for the death of Jesus, you know, which it does say the Jews, which mainly meant the leaders, but there were others. Like that was all on the Jews. So 
a lot of Christianity hated the Jews and mistreated the Jews in that respect. And so we need to have a proper perspective that that we're going to see this, the gifts and calling are irrevo- irrevocable, that God still has a plan and that we need to care about the Jews because he does. All day long, I've held out my hands, okay? At the same time, we don't, we're going to see we don't need to be prideful because now, you know, we trusted Christ and they're just blind, okay? So that's where he's going with this. So let's go to 13 and 14. I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And then he goes on to use two illustrations I'll get to. But while Paul was called to the Gentiles, he never quit longing for his people. And remember how they hated him and treated him, but he loved them. It's just like St. Valentine. When you see offering to people and pressing on and when you look at the love of God it's love to people that are undeserving and that's how we should gauge our love okay he never quit longing for them his hope was that their their that the Gentiles relationship would make Israel envious they would see that and come around Um, but not only is Israel hardened but the Gentiles have not lived up lived in such a way as to make them envious as a matter of fact, we persecuted them. So in many respects, we've kind of failed at our mission too. And so now he goes to the two illustrations in 15 and 16. He says, talking about the Jews and God's plan for them and the Gentiles, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. There's the pride he's warning us against. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Okay, so let's talk about what he's saying there. The root, the part of the dough is a, is a throwback to the offering of first fruits. When you would take the first part and offer it, and therefore you were allowed to use the rest of it, and it was considered holy because you had put it in the right perspective. It's kind of like maybe I think on some level, even though we're not under the law, of why we promote giving a tithe, the first of your offering to the Lord, because then in, in, in a way before the Lord, it makes the rest holy because you're saying to God, I'm giving you the first part, and I'm trusting you with the rest. Now think about it. If you're, if you're growing crops... And, you know, you assume you're going to have more. If you give God the first part, you're trusting him that there's going to be more there later. The same thing with our salary. It's a way of saying, I trust you to God. And in that respect, it makes it holy. I think if you keep everything for yourself because you're fearful and you try to hang on to it and you don't give anything to the Lord because you got, you're looking at your budget on paper or whatever, then God doesn't consider it holy how you spend your money. And so I'm not going to give you like a percentage, you know, and all that, but I'm saying it's a principle 
Do you understand the principle there? That you give the first to God and trust him that he's going to be enough with the rest. That's what it meant for the first fruits. Now, he's likening that to Israel, okay, because they were the first to believe. And you go back to the patriarchs. So eventually we're going to see that the goal is, and the promises are still there for the Jewish people in a way that we fully don't understand when it says all Israel will be saved, what that means. But God has a plan for them, and he's not done with his promises. Then he goes into um, a little clearer picture, which, which, by the way, I just had this note I forgot. Some commentators think if the first part of the dough speaks to the patriarchs, God chose those forefathers, set them apart, made covenant promises. That was like the first fruits, and so the rest is holy. So if you, on Romans eleven twenty eight, that you're going to see this week, this is what he says. As far as the gospel's concerned, they're enemies on your account, talking about Jews. But as far as election's concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs. So some people think this first part of the dough has to do with the patriarchs because God made covenant promises to them. Now, the same thing is true about the olive tree analogy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. This whole analogy of the olive tree is analogy of grace because all the branches have been engrafted. Now let's talk about that, okay? The Gentiles have been engrafted by grace. Israel was broken off, but then they can be engrafted again, it says, by grace. Grace is the whole point of this illustration, so don't lose sight of that. Grace is the whole point of this illustration. But he does say, and he makes this point, and here's your truth, grace may be free, but it's not to be presumed upon. Grace may be free, but it's not to be presumed upon. Grace may be free, but it's not to be presumed upon. It should not lead anyone to arrogance. He's talking to the Gentiles. You've been, gra- you know, you've allowed to come in and been grafted in, and it's not cheap. It costs Christ everything. In addition to the grace part, which is the grafting in, he also speaks of human responsibility. That's, this is the piece about not presuming on grace. Grace demands a response of humility and trust. It's not a right. Grace is not permission to do as you want. Grace calls us to conform our lives to the structures of God's grace. There's a response that's required. This doesn't mean you can lose your salvation if you're truly in Christ. It shows that those who seem to belong to Christ but are not, are not truly in him. And we see this just like Judas. Look at the picture of Judas. Everybody thought he was in there, but he wasn't. And we see this in the vine and the branches, in that analogy, the Judas branches, when Jesus teaches that analogy. So we see that there is a type of appearing to be a union that's not real. That's why God calls us to examine ourselves. We can be deceived. He doesn't want us to walk around in fear, but neither does he want us to walk around in complacency presuming on grace because we made a decision, okay, because it's a relationship. We are called to not only trust that nothing can separate us from the love of God, we are called to be humble and not take for granted that relationship. We're called to be humble and not take for granted. 
True believers will persevere. It's not just all on you. God will help you persevere, but you have a part in that. God will keep us, but he, but we have to do our part to work on the relationship, not unlike in a marriage. You can have that commitment and be together, but you always have to keep working on the relationship. But I love this. In the midst of this illustration of grace, in verse 22, look what he says. Because we need to have a full picture of God. We don't need to have a simplistic picture of God. It's weak. Consider, therefore, which, by the way, he said, if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So that, that's not what I just said to make you live in fear, but they weren't, they weren't truly coming by faith. So you've got to make sure that it's a relationship by faith that you're engaged in. But in 22, he says, consider, that means behold, really gaze at, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. And some say severity, some translation, the kindness and severity. Sternness or severity to those who fell that were not truly united by faith. But kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. You see the the point of our responsibility and the perseverance there? Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. There's the grace. We all stand by grafting in. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that's wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these natural branches, speaking of Israel, be grafted into their own olive tree, Jesus Christ? So there's hope for Israel, and it's all by grace. But consider the kindness and sternness or severity of God. We are called, um, oh, I just read that part. In the midst of this illustration, we are to look at this and see a true picture of God. Mark 13, 13 says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. We must stand in both faith and in fear. And I want to talk about fear here. We must behold our look at both of these, both the kindness and sternness of God. So here's your next truth. Your faith is shaped by what you look at. Your faith is shaped by by what you look at. And he's calling us to see both the kindness and the sternness. Fear has a key role in helping us maintain faith. And so I want to talk about this because I'm not talking about walking around in fear, never knowing if you're saved or not, all that kind of rigmarole, nor am I talking about fear as just respect because a lot of people teach today that we're not to fear God, we're just to respect him. But I don't think that's the true picture. I think there is a kind of fear that's more than just respect of a holy God. I don't see anybody in the Old Testament coming to God casually. So, nor did they come to Jesus Christ casually when they saw him in all the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration as well. But here, here's where I'm going with that. Fear, number one, causes us to cling to the kindness of God. It causes us to appreciate grace. When we understand how holy he is and that he's a God of justice and wrath and he's powerful and so beyond us, it causes us to cling to his kindness. That's why we need to see both. 
Fear deepens your faith and keeps it from being trivial. We worship the king of the universe. The angels are bowing down, crying out, holy, holy, holy. They're not saying God is my homeboy. Our faith should not be trivial. And there's a sweetness that comes from, de from delighting in the fear of the Lord because it gives you that proper perspective and it adds a dimension to your relationship. But here's the difference. When condemnation is removed, there is now therefore no condemnation or the dread of God. When that's removed, we have a humility and awe and a wonder that enables our worship. So the fear is different. When condemnation is removed, fear becomes a positive thing. And I love this. One writer said, "We are. this is the truth. We are created to be safely afraid of God. We are created to be safely afraid of God. And I'm going to give you an illustration that shows that. So one of my sons, I asked if I could have permission, my oldest son, Cody, as he was coming up in high school, developed a love for horror movies, which I had a real problem with because I think they're demonic. But he loved horror movies. And I could not, I as a child was scared of the dark, and I do not watch anything scary. I think it was partly because my mom watched this soap opera called Dark Shadows when I was little that was horrible. I don't know. Maybe that's why I was scared of everything. So I don't like scary stuff. So I never could understand why does he enjoy that. At the same time, when he had his first job, he was like 15 and working uh, for my husband at Coke in, on delivery trucks. They delivered to this place in a nearby town um, that was kind of like a nursing home for people that had mental illness. And so he would go there to deliver and the, the main guy would go, you know, get the money or the check, and he'd be left out there at lunchtime, and all the residents would come up around him and talk to him and be very unusual, and he was terrified, terrified. And I'm like, you're, you're in, a, like, a nursing home, and it's just right there, but he was scared out of his mind. And I'm like, how can you be so scared of that when you love the horror? But you see, the difference is when it's on the screen, you're safely afraid. You see that? I mean, it's no different to me. I don't like to be afraid. And so that's why some people love that kind of stuff, but yet he like freak out at the, the nursing home when there was real people there that were just a little unusual. And so I thought of that, and I asked him if I could share that story because there is something in us that is created to be safely afraid of God, it adds another dimension to that relationship because our God, the kindness and severity, is a God of mercy, but he's a God of wrath. He's a God of tenderness, but he's a God of toughness. He's a God of salvation, but he's a God of judgment. The kindness and the sternness are often side by side in scripture. So let's look at a few places. And one of these you're going to be familiar with, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. We're going, to, we're going to take a minute beholding and considering the kindness and the severity of God. So let's go to Exodus 34. We've read this before. I love this passage. This is where God is revealing himself to Moses. 
Moses wants to see his glory. Let's see here, Exodus 34. Oh, and 24, no wonder it didn't look right. 34, 6, and 7. This became the working definition for Israel of God. So let's take a look at it. Starting at 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, proclaimed his name, the Lord, that's Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. There's the kindness. Yet... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. There's the severity. Okay, next one. Uh, that was 34, okay. 6 and 7, Exodus 34. Now go to Romans 10, 28. Go back to Romans. And we're going to look at Romans 10, 28 through 31 what there's no Romans 10 28 oh Matt no I'm sorry Matthew oh my Romans is next let's go to Matthew first I was like what <laughs> Matthew 10 28 <laughs> Woo, I thought I was losing my mind for a minute which is not unusual okay Matthew 10 28 let's let's behold the kindness and sternness of God Start at 26. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight, and what is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Now, look what he says. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. There's the severity of God. There's the fear. Jesus himself is telling us to fear. But let's look at the kindness. 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Do you see the kindness and severity right there side by side? Now we can go to Romans 2, 4, and 5. Or do, you show, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? There's his kindness. But look at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So you've got the kindness and the sternness side by side. And I just bring that up because he says to look at it, to behold it, because it strengthens us, it gives us a proper perspective, it helps us to love God in a way that we might not if we were not aware of both of those. One writer says, kindness is what we fly to and severity is what we flee from. So Paul is teaching, here's some truths that he's teaching in this section. There's only one people of God. The key is your faith or belief. Those truly in Christ will not be broken off. Those who come to Christ through faith are grafted in, um, which is the same teaching as Romans 4 when he talked about Abraham by faith. 
Jews and Gentiles contribute nothing to salvation. They just receive it. The people of God will bear fruit. Now, you might be thinking, it didn't say anything about fruit, but what's the purpose of grafting? It's fruit. Exactly. Live your life beholding the kindness and severity of God and let it move you to awe and wonder and worship and obedience. And when you know there's no condemnation, that he is our father and friend, what remains for us in this kind of fear of God is very pleasant. Nehemiah prayed, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant who delight to fear your name. Delight to fear your name. And he said, provided that you continue in your kindness. So this brings us back to true love. We see that the offer still stands because he just said, provided that you continue. Let me get back over to that. After all, if you were cut out and grafted in, how much more readily will these natural branches be grafted in? So God has not quit on them. He's still holding out his hands. That's the reason we must share the gospel, hold on to Christ as our greatest treasure, because God demonstrated his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The true meaning of love and what our purpose should be about. Let's pray. God, we do stand amazed at how you continue to hold out your hands, Lord, not just for those that are lost, but even to us when we choose other things. You are so faithful. You have such a covenant-keeping, has said love. And we pray that, God, we would love you in a way that is worthy of this love and that you would help us to love others the way you love us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, ladies.